Section 37 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 37, Chapter 44, Part 1. Elizabeth. Though the dominion of the English over Ireland had been seemingly established above four centuries, it may safely be affirmed that their authority had hitherto been little more than nominal. The Irish princes and nobles, divided among themselves, readily paid the exterior marks of obedience to a power which they were not able to resist. But as no durable force was ever kept on foot to retain them in their duty, they relapsed still into their former state of independence. Too weak to introduce order and obedience among the rude inhabitants, the English authority was yet sufficient to check the growth of any enterprising genius among the natives, and though it could bestow no true form of civil government, it was able to prevent the rise of any such form from the internal combination or policy of the Irish. Most of the English institutions, likewise, by which that island was governed, were to the last degree absurd and such as no state before had ever thought of for preserving dominion over its conquered provinces. The English nation, all on fire for the project of subduing France, a project whose success was the most improbable, and would to them have proved the most pernicious, neglected all other enterprises to which their situation so strongly invited them, and which in time would have brought them an accession of riches, grandeur, and security. The small army which they maintained in Ireland, they never supplied regularly with pay, and as no money could be levied on the island, which possessed none, they gave their soldiers the privilege of free quarter upon the natives. Rapine and insolence inflamed the hatred which prevailed between the conquerors and the conquered. Want of security among the Irish, introducing despair, nourished still more the sloth natural to that uncultivated people. But the English carried further their ill-judged tyranny. Instead of inviting the Irish to adopt the more civilized customs of their conquerors, they even refused, though earnestly solicited, to communicate to them the privilege of their laws and everywhere marked them out as aliens and as enemies. Thrown out of the protection of justice, the natives could find no security but in force, and flying the neighborhood of cities which they could not approach with safety, they sheltered themselves in their marshes and forests from the insolence of their inhuman masters. Being treated like wild beasts, they became such, and joining the ardor of revenge to their yet untamed barbarity, they grew every day more intractable and more dangerous. 
as the english princes deemed the conquest of the dispersed irish to be more the object of time and patience than the source of military glory they willingly delegated that office to private adventurers who enlisting soldiers at their own charge reduced provinces of that island which they converted to their own profit separate jurisdictions and principalities were established by these lordly conquerors the power of peace and war was assumed military law was exercised over the irish whom they subdued and by degrees over the english by whose assistance they conquered and after their authority had once taken root deeming the english institutions less favourable to barbarous dominion they degenerated into mere irish and abandoned the garb language manners and laws of their mother country by all this imprudent conduct of england the natives of its dependent state remained still in that abject condition into which the northern and western parts of europe were sunk before they received civility and slavery from the refined policy and irresistible bravery of rome even at the end of the sixteenth century when every christian nation was cultivating with ardour every civil art of life that island lying in a temperate climate enjoying a fertile soil accessible in its situation possessed of innumerable harbours was still notwithstanding these advantages inhabited by a people whose customs and manners approached nearer those of savages than of barbarians as the rudeness and ignorance of the irish were extreme they were sunk below the reach of that curiosity and love of novelty by which every other people in europe had been seized at the beginning of that century and which had engaged them in innovations and religious disputes with which they were still so violently agitated the ancient superstition the practices and observances of their fathers mingled and polluted with many wild opinions still maintained an unshaken empire over them and the example alone of the english was sufficient to render the reformation odious to the prejudiced and discontented irish the old opposition of manners laws and interest was now inflamed by religious antipathy and the subduing and civilizing of that country seemed to become every day more difficult and more impracticable the animosity against the english was carried so far by the irish that in an insurrection raised by two sons of the earl of clarinicade they put to the sword all the inhabitants of the town of athenry though irish because they began to conform themselves to english customs and had embraced a more civilized form of life than had been practised by their ancestors the usual revenue of ireland amounted only to six thousand pounds a year the queen though with much repining commonly added twenty thousand more which she remitted from england and with this small revenue a body of a thousand men was supported 
which on extraordinary emergencies was augmented to two thousand no wonder that a force so disproportioned to the object instead of subduing a mutinous kingdom served rather to provoke the natives and to excite those frequent insurrections which still further inflamed the animosity between the two nations and increased the disorders to which the irish were naturally subject in fifteen sixty shan o'neill or the great o'neill as the irish called him because head of that potent clan raised a rebellion in ulster but after some skirmishes he was received into favour upon his submission and his promise of a more dutiful behaviour for the future this impunity tempted him to undertake a new insurrection in fifteen sixty seven but being pushed by sir henry sidney lord deputy he retreated into clandeboy and rather than submit to the english he put himself into the hands of some scottish islanders who commonly infested those parts by their incursions the scots who retained a quarrel against him on account of former injuries violated the laws of hospitality and murdered him at a festival to which they had invited him he was a man equally noted for his pride his violence his debaucheries and his hatred of the english nation he is said to have put some of his followers to death because they endeavoured to introduce the use of bread after the english fashion though so violent an enemy to luxury he was extremely addicted to riot and was accustomed after his intemperance had thrown him into a fever to plunge his body into mire that he might allay the flame which he had raised by former excesses such was the life led by this haughty barbarian who scorned the title the earl of tyrone which elizabeth intended to have restored to him and who assumed the rank and appellation of king of ulster he used also to say that though the queen was his sovereign lady he never made peace with her but at her seeking sir henry sidney was one of the wisest and most active governors that ireland had enjoyed for several reigns and he possessed his authority eleven years during which he struggled with many difficulties and made some progress in repressing those disorders which had become inveterate among the people the earl of desmond in fifteen sixty nine gave him disturbance from the hereditary animosity which prevailed between that nobleman and the earl of ormond descended from the only family established in ireland that had steadily maintained its loyalty to the english crown the earl of thomond in fifteen seventy attempted rebellion in connaught but was obliged to fly into france before his designs were ripe for execution stukely another figure found such credit with the pope gregory the thirteenth that he flattered that pontiff with the prospect of making his nephew buon campagno king of ireland and as if this project had already taken effect he accepted the title of marquis of leinster from the new sovereign he passed next into spain 
and after having received much encouragement and great rewards from philip who intended to employ him as an instrument in disturbing elizabeth he was found to possess too little interest for executing those high promises which he had made to that monarch he retired into portugal and following the fortunes of don sebastian he perished with that gallant prince in his bold but unfortunate expedition against the moors lord grey after some interval succeeded to the government of ireland and in fifteen seventy nine suppressed a new rebellion of the earl of desmond though supported by a body of spaniards and italians the rebellion of the borks followed a few years after occasioned by the strict and equitable administration of sir richard bingham governor of connaught who endeavoured to repress the tyranny of the chieftains over their vassals the queen finding ireland so burdensome to her tried several expedients for reducing it to a state of greater order and submission she encouraged the earl of essex father to that nobleman who was afterwards her favourite to attempt the subduing and planting of clandeboy fernie and other territories part of some late forfeitures but that enterprise proved unfortunate and essex died of a distemper occasioned as is supposed by the vexation which he had conceived from his disappointments a university was founded in dublin with a view of introducing arts and learning into that kingdom and civilizing the uncultivated manners of the inhabitants but the most unhappy expedient employed in the government of ireland was that made use of in fifteen eighty five by sir john perrow at that time lord deputy he put arms into the hands of the irish inhabitants of ulster in order to enable them without the assistance of the government to repress the incursions of the scottish islanders by which these parts were much infested at the same time the invitations of philip joined to their zeal for the catholic religion engaged many of the gentry to serve in the low country wars and thus ireland being provided with officers and soldiers with discipline and arms became formidable to the english and was thenceforth able to maintain a more regular war against her ancient masters hugh o'neill nephew to shan o'neill had been raised by the queen to the dignity of earl of tyrone but having murdered his cousin son of that rebel and being acknowledged head of his clan he preferred the pride of barbarous license and dominion to the pleasures of opulence and tranquillity and he fomented all those disorders by which he hoped to weaken or overturn the english government he was noted for the vices of perfidy and cruelty so common among uncultivated nations and was also eminent for courage a virtue which their disorderly course of life requires and which notwithstanding being less supported by the principle of honour is commonly more precarious among them than among a civilised people 
tyrone actuated this spirit secretly fomented the discontents of the maguires o'donnells o'rourke's mcmahon's and other rebels yet trusting to the influence of his deceitful oaths and professions he put himself into the hands of sir william russell who in the year fifteen ninety four was sent over deputy to ireland contrary to the advice and protestation of sir henry bagnall marshal of the army he was dismissed and returning to his own country he embraced the resolution of raising an open rebellion and of relying no longer on the lenity or inexperience of the english government he entered into a correspondence with spain he procured thence a supply of arms and ammunition and having united all the irish chieftains in a dependence upon himself he began to be regarded as a formidable enemy the native irish were so poor that their country afforded few other commodities than cattle and oatmeal which were easily concealed or driven away on the approach of the enemy and as elizabeth was averse to the expense requisite for supporting her armies the english found much difficulty in pushing their advantages and in pursuing the rebels into the bogs woods and other fastnesses to which they retreated these motives rendered sir john norris who commanded the english army the more willing to hearken to any proposals of truce or accommodation made him by tyrone and after the war was spun out by these artifices for some years that gallant englishman finding that he had been deceived by treacherous promises and that he had performed nothing worthy of his ancient reputation was seized with a languishing distemper and died of vexation and discontent sir henry bagnall who succeeded him in the command was still more unfortunate as he advanced to relieve the fort of blackwater besieged by the rebels he was surrounded in disadvantageous ground his soldiers discouraged by part of their powders accidentally taking fire were put to flight and though the pursuit was stopped by montacute who commanded the english horse fifteen hundred men together with the general himself were left dead upon the spot this victory so unusual to the irish roused their courage supplied them with arms and ammunition and raised the reputation of tyrone who assumed the character of the deliverer of his country and patron of irish liberty the english council were now sensible that the rebellion of ireland was come to a dangerous head and that the former temporizing arts of granting truces and pacifications to the rebels and of allowing them to purchase pardons by resigning part of the plunder acquired during their insurrection served only to encourage the spirit of mutiny and disorder among them it was therefore resolved to push the war by more vigorous measures and the queen cast her eyes on charles blount lord mountjoy as a man who though hitherto less accustomed to arms than to books and literature was endowed she thought with talents equal to the undertaking 
but the young earl of essex ambitious of fame and desirous of obtaining this government for himself opposed the choice of mountjoy and represented the necessity of appointing for that important employment some person more experienced in war than this nobleman more practised in business and of higher quality and reputation by this description he was understood to mean himself and no sooner was his desire known than his enemies even more zealously than his friends conspired to gratify his wishes many of his friends thought that he never ought to consent except for a short time to accept of any employment which must remove him from court and prevent him from cultivating that personal inclination which the queen so visibly bore him his enemies hoped that if by his absence she had once leisure to forget the charms of his person and conversation his impatient and lofty demeanour would soon disgust a princess who usually exacted such profound submission and implicit obedience from all her servants but essex was incapable of entering into such cautious views and even elizabeth who was extremely desirous of subduing the irish rebels and who was much prepossessed in favour of essex's genius readily agreed to appoint him governor of ireland by the title of lord lieutenant the more to encourage him in his undertaking she granted him by his patent more extensive authority had ever before been conferred on any lieutenant the power of carrying on or finishing the war as he pleased of pardoning the rebels and of filling all the most considerable employments of the kingdom and to ensure him of success she levied a numerous army of sixteen thousand foot and thirteen hundred horse which she afterwards augmented to twenty thousand foot and two thousand horse a force which it was apprehended would be able in one campaign to overwhelm the rebels and make an entire conquest of ireland nor did essex enemies the earl of nottingham sir robert cecil sir walter raleigh and lord cobham throw any obstacles in the way of these preparations but hoped that the higher the queen's expectations of success were raised the more difficult it would be for the event to correspond to them in a like view they rather seconded than opposed those exalted encomiums which essex's numerous and sanguine friends dispersed of his high genius of his elegant endowments his heroic courage his unbounded generosity and his noble birth nor were they displeased to observe that passionate fondness which the people everywhere expressed for this nobleman these artful politicians had studied his character and finding that his open and undaunted spirit if taught temper and reserve from opposition must become invincible they resolved rather to give full breath to those sails which were already too much expanded and to push him upon dangers of which he seemed to make such small account 
and the better to make advantage of his indiscretions, spies were set upon all his actions and even expressions, and his vehement spirit, which while he was in the midst of the court and environed by his rivals, was unacquainted with disguise, could not fail, after he thought himself surrounded by none but friends, to give a pretense for malignant suspicions and constructions. Essex left London in the month of March, attended with the acclamations of the populace, and what did him more honour, accompanied by a numerous train of nobility and gentry, who from affection to his person had attached themselves to his fortunes, and sought fame and military experience under so renowned a commander. The first act of authority which he exercised after his arrival in Ireland was an indiscretion, but of the generous kind, and in both these respects suitable to his character. He appointed his intimate friend, the Earl of Southampton, General of the Horse, a nobleman who had incurred the Queen's displeasure by secretly marrying without her consent, and whom she had therefore enjoined Essex not to employ in any command under him. She no sooner heard of this instance of disobedience than she reprimanded him and ordered him to recall his commission to Southampton. But Essex, who imagined that some reasons which he opposed to her first injunctions had satisfied her, had the imprudence to remonstrate against these second orders, and it was not till she reiterated her commands that he could be prevailed on to displace his friend. Essex, on his landing at Dublin, deliberated with the Irish Council concerning the proper methods of carrying on the war against the rebels. And here he was guilty of a capital error which was the ruin of his enterprise. He had always, while in England, blamed the conduct of former commanders, who artfully protracted the war, who harassed their troops in small enterprises, and who, by agreeing to truces and temporary pacifications with the rebels, had given them leisure to recruit their broken forces. In conformity to these views, he had ever insisted upon leading his forces immediately into Ulster against Tyrone, the chief enemy, and his instructions had been drawn agreeably to these declared resolutions but the Irish councillors persuaded him that the season was too early for the enterprise, and that as the morasses in which the northern Irish usually sheltered themselves would not yet be passable to the English forces, it would be better to employ the present time in an expedition into Munster. The secret reason for this advice was that many of them possessed estates in that province, and were desirous to have the enemy dislodged from their neighbourhood. But the same selfish spirit which had induced them to give this counsel made them soon after disown it, when they found the bad consequences with which it was attended. End of section 37, chapter 44, part 1.